0: Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast.
1: I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. Our guest today is Igor Peretsik, who is the Chief Data Officer and VP of Engineering at LinkedIn. Hi, Igor. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome.
0: Yeah, thank you, Igor, for joining us. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role at LinkedIn.
2: Uh, certainly. So I guess from an education perspective, I grew up in Switzerland and have an undergrad degree in applied math from DPFL, which I then follow up with graduate studies in statistics in the US. So by education, I'm a statistician. And then early on in my career, I just pivoted to the to the industry. And since then, I was essentially involved, which was originally called, let's say, applied statistics, then data mining, then machine learning, then data science, and now AI. So I guess it's kind of depending on what it was at that time, the label just changed. The funny thing here, though, is that at the beginning, when I started into that domain, it didn't have a label. So people didn't really understand what I was interested in doing or what I was doing. So they would always pivot back to statistics and say, oh, you're doing stuff like the Census Bureau or... FDA, drug approvals, et cetera, et cetera. And it took a while to sort of register. In the sense, from the beginning in my career, I was always interested into leveraging data to provide or to enhance an individual's ability to do their job and to achieve more. Today at LinkedIn, I'm the chief data officer and the VP of engineering. I've been part of the engineering organization from the beginning because I'd like to build things. And uh, my responsibility then on the engineering side, it's everything that covers the data spectrum from online to offline distributed systems that allow us to store data, think about storage systems with different semantics, to let data flow from one service to another one, things like Kafka, which we invented and open source at LinkedIn, to other big systems that let us manipulate that data at scale, think Hadoop, Spark, TensorFlow, et cetera, et cetera. And then on top of that infrastructure and these platforms, my teams are responsible for all the AI that enables us to deliver personalized experience to our members. And on the chief data officer side, I'm responsible to make sure that we use our data in a responsible fashion according to the terms of the services, but also to regulations. So I kind of sit between product legal and engineering to make sure that we are all on the same page and that information and communication flows across so that everybody's consulted and making sure that knows what's happening.
1: Yeah, excellent. Well, you know, the interesting thing that you mentioned, data science is sort of both a profession and and sort of as a role has really emerged quite a bit. Most very recently, and you're right, it's interesting, people you know, when you look at so trying to understand, and do a little data science one one you're like, there really Indeed. isn't very much. A, you'd think there'd be a well-established definition. And you know, some people look at it from the statistics probability perspective, primarily, or data analytics perspective. Some people look at it from the data management perspective and say it's mostly data and a little bit of science. And some people. So it's kind of interesting all that. But the chief data officer role also is fairly yeah. a, a new thing. But you know, of course, we've been dependent on data
2: for decades. You know, ever since we've had data, <laughs> right? Correct. So, but all of that also changes through time. What we viewed as data science at the beginning was doing a lot of things, which today you, we, you already saw the split. For example, a data engineer was a core component of data science at the beginning, like around 2007, 8, just because all these data systems did not exist. So you had to build them. And where there's the need, there'd be innovation to drive them. And who felt that need? Well, the data scientists. So the data engineering was part of it. Same thing for chief data officer. So suddenly the demand on making sure that the way that individual manipulate or use data within their organization is much more controlled than what it was before, kind of elevated that role. And people flock into that role from different perspectives. You have people that come maybe from the legal side and then their gap is towards engineering or people will come from the data science side and their gap is more towards the legal ease of it as well as the engineering side. And some people come from the engineering side and they need to understand what the legal component and the data science components are affecting it. So it always changes through time. The label kind of stays, but the definition of what you're really doing changes and adapts.
1: Yeah, and I think that's, that's important. you know, and, and we actually do like the idea of data centricity, understanding data and the role of data at the C-level, which means that it has visibility at the highest, most strategic level of the organization. Traditionally, maybe people have thought of it as a component of the information officer's role, the technology mm. officer's role. So that's really good to kind of hear your perspective on, especially at LinkedIn. So uh, one of the other things people may not be aware of, you know, so obviously one of the things we're going to try to do with this data is trying to get more insights and, and use data to train systems for machine learning to apply to a wide range of applications. And so, you know, LinkedIn in particular uses AI in many ways that maybe perhaps users may not be aware of on a daily basis. So Can you give us some sort of insights and outline of the many different ways that LinkedIn is applying AI and how it's enhancing the user experience?
2: Uh, Sure. So we leverage AI at LinkedIn always in the context of our vision. Our vision is to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. And within that space, we described AI as being the oxygen for LinkedIn. It's really embedded just about everywhere. If you think about creating economic opportunity at the scale that we want to create it, we have roughly 675 million members on the platform. And there's roughly nowadays, I'm not too sure how many jobs anymore, but it's in the millions as well. Doing that match between that big of a set of individuals and that big of a set of jobs, you need to have tools, you need to have AI to allow it to be personalized and to be good at that level. So you have a lot of things that we do is to making sure that all that information is personalized to make individuals, quote unquote, smarter and enable them to do their work better so that they're not flooded with the noise that could be on the platform. So that's on the visible side. But there's also a very big part, which is, quote unquote, behind the scene. For example, within our A-B testing platform, the way that we figured out how to route our traffic to our data centers, where to put these access points to enable speedy delivery of our experience to our members or simple things or simple and complicated things such as anomaly detection in our services where something is different than what we forecasted. So it's really just about everywhere.
0: You know, that's really interesting because I think that people sometimes only realize what they see. And I'm sure that right now, People are leveraging LinkedIn quite heavily with everything that's going on. Increasingly, regions around the world are applying new data privacy regulations. We have GDPR in the European Union, and California recently enacted California's Consumer Privacy Act. So how is this Uh, impacting... Yeah, the CCPA. So how is this impacting how you guys use data for your AI-enabled systems?
2: i maybe give a longer answer to that because it, it's very pertinent in the way that people leverage data today. At LinkedIn, we started actually our core value proposition, value internally was about, was members first. It drove, even from the beginning, I think it came from Reed and, and Alan. So it's that, that mission of to deliver critical economic opportunity was always with the focus on members first. So when you think about members first, it implies that you can't necessarily project your beliefs onto what our members want. You need to ask them. Even before GDPR, we had a concept, which we call the three Cs, to ensure this. And essentially, it's, we believe that we need to provide clarity to our members about what we're going to do with the data. We need to be consistent with what we say we're going to do, and we need to give them control over it. So... 3 clarity, consistency, and control. So in that context, we did approach GDPR more as an opportunity to reinforce our commitment to data privacy for all our members and to kind of accelerate tooling and scaling processes. An interesting point to highlight is data subject rights under GDPR are available to all our members globally, irrespective of whether you're part of the European Union or not. We just felt that it was the right thing to do. And with respect to AI and data science, it did back a little bit in some places because now, if you want to have access to some data and you don't necessarily have automatic access to it, you need to ask permission, which means then we're going to look at, does it fit our terms of services and what our members expect? And if it doesn't, then you won't have access to that. Therefore, you won't be able to use it. So we need to be much more rigorous up front. But internally, it's really well understood and acknowledged because we felt from the beginning that it's our job actually also to protect our members' data. And it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily the responsibility of just one individual or a specific team. It's all our joint responsibility to make it so.
1: Yeah, this is really very interesting. And and we've been talking about because it's it's because it's a very complicated gray area with regards to training data and machine learning models that have been built on training data with respect to using personal information to train that data. So while you know the machine learning model may not have personally identifiable information specifically about you. When I built, say, a product recommendation system or some sort of matching or or any sort of predictive analytics thing where I necessarily had to use real-world data, it's difficult to say, well, does GDPR's, for example, its right to be forgotten, include the right to have your information removed from models that may have used your information as training data? That's a tricky little case have you guys do you have any thoughts specifically about that one? yeah
2: well, uh, certainly the right to be forgotten you have a certain amount of days to do so i forgot if it's 30 days from the time that the member asks us to remove everything so then if essentially we build up the machinery and the tooling in our system to remove all the data that they have and then within our models well you need to just to retrain them so it's removed from the training side and it's removed from the evaluation side of the model training perspective and you just rebuild your model. And in a sense, it wasn't necessarily an issue for us because our models get retrained very, very often. We don't have models that are just basically sitting idle for six months, for example. But one thing was for GDPR compliance is we wanted to make sure that that wasn't the case. So we basically looked at all the stuff that we do to make sure that that window of refreshing I model to retrain it and the changing the data that we have actually fits it as well. Yeah, makes sense.
1: Well, what are these areas that I think is sort of at the edge of use of AI and machine learning, especially even though link, we don't really think of, I don't think of necessarily LinkedIn as a social media network. So maybe some people do. I think of it as more of a professional network. And I think it's kind of nice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, in these days, we understand that you work know, is social, social, right? Completely. Completely. It is. Yeah. Work
1: and social. But you know, you can starting to see people are sort of leaking some of the things that they do on their, the world of Twitter and Facebook into LinkedIn. Facebook has recently rolled out like this auto moderation thing where, where they have an AI system, you know, that's keeping an eye on, especially because they've been there's so much news and attention has been paid attention to, to the things that, that have been. Posted on Facebook and Twitter that you know it's hard to do human moderation. So of course they're they're, they're using machine moderation, especially for videos and things that they're trying to prevent. I, I mean, this is maybe specific, but like what, what has LinkedIn used? Because this is very specific to AI, especially around things like model training and retraining and things like that. Have, have, is, is that in place? Or are you kind of what, what can you say about the role of AI for things like
2: moderation? So certainly, and I'm not going to go in details on this, as you may uh, certainly understand why. We signed the Christchurch Agreement as well. So we're bound by it as well. And then if there is such, a, such those type of videos that pop up on the platform, we really have 15 minutes to take it down. So certainly we have AI machinery that's in place to detect whether it would fall or would not fall within that bucket, as well as processes that if a member reports it, we're very quick to act upon it. Similarly for, let's say, child pornography. It's not that because LinkedIn is a professional environment that uh, some individuals may not be tempted from time to time. So the level, if you want, of potential problematic or things that we do not want on the platform of that sort is much, much lower than, let's say, what Facebook would have. But it doesn't mean that we're not careful. So we want to make sure that we protect the quality of the the dialogue, that is very professional instead of diverging into these different cases. And within that, certainly we do have uh, different types of AI models that pick up different things.
0: You know, that is interesting because we think of LinkedIn as a professional network, but there still are, I mean, many, many users on there. So you just can't moderate it all. Following up with that, you know, at least by hand, so you need to use Mm -hmm. AI tools. So following up with that, what are some interesting or surprising insights that you can share about LinkedIn's use of AI?
2: Well, I... I think the first one, and because we take it for granted, if I were to take a step back, the bigger insight, the bigger thing that jumps at me is just how prevalent it is. I mentioned some example, and I just mentioned that we view it as the oxygen at LinkedIn. But the interesting thing to understand is that it wasn't necessarily given from the beginning. I've been at LinkedIn for a bit more than 12 years. It wasn't suddenly that 12 years ago, everybody said, oh, you need to use AI. So it gradually got embedded into a lot of our members' experiences. And one of the reasons is that over a longer period of time, AI will always provide more value to our members than simple rules that you can put in place. So you may look at any metric internally that proxies for the value that you're providing to a member. And over time, AI would dominate a thing that you may want to put in place. One cool example from the early days. If you remember, LinkedIn used to be the butt of jokes in late night shows. That's maybe six, seven years ago. Essentially about email spam. We even had a Homer Simpson cartoon about it, which I would not say on which word it was. Yeah, let you the pleasure to discover it. And it took a little bit of convincing to to put a framework in place that would gradually look at modeling the entire ecosystem and put a nice multi objective framework in perspective. And part of that objective function was to optimize for less complaints, which over time actually worked really well to the point that today we're not the butt of jokes anymore about spamming our members. And the interesting thing is that also translated then later on when we moved to more of a mobile platform in the sense that now it's not necessarily email but it might be notification. Then if I look at like and I can go on forever on it, but that's let's say from the mundane side to the arcane side. I think on the mundane side people think about oh it's people usually think about AI yeah, about cool recommendations in here or there. But at the bottom of it of what we do at LinkedIn, uh we standardize our vocabulary. So LinkedIn has created the economic graph in order to enable us to create a, to deliver on our vision and mission. And the economic graph, think about it, it's roughly 675 million members, it's millions of companies, it's millions of jobs, it's, millions, it's thousands of skills, it's thousands of education institutions and pieces of knowledge. But all of this is kind of raw data on structured form. And their AI actually helps us. To standardize it, an example is we have roughly 160 million title variations, which we standardize to roughly 24,000. Then AI allows us to figure out what are these uh, fundamental core vocabulary when you describe a job, when what company you're talking about, what skill are you talking about, what is the, the the geography, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then that fuels all our let's say AI pipelines and our product offering. For example, when you do a search and you're looking for a job in a given geographical area, if you don't standardize and it's all random strengths, it's really hard to navigate that search results. But that piece of AI, if you want, really funnels throughout our members' experiences. And on the Arcane side, that today, given my role, I guess, the thing that actually fascinates me is the whole AI infrastructure space. Because AI is evolving very, very rapidly which is a phenomenal challenge for any infrastructure person, any distributed systems person. Distributed systems engineers have kind of these cycles that infra cycles will be roughly three years from a rapid prototyping of an idea to full deployment to 100% of traffic. Three years. Well, that's not the cycle on AI. As you and I know, it, it seems that every six months, something new pops up that drastically changes the previous paradigm. But you cannot build an infrastructure over three-year cycles and keeping pace with something that evolves every six months. So that challenge is very fascinating. You have to move back and look at how are these systems architected? What are the abstractions that you put in place to keep on providing that leverage over a big period of time? So that modelers don't need to think too much about the complexity of the system and keep on being good at what they're doing and being efficient and fast, but that the tooling essentially can enable the online systems to keep up.
0: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I think that a lot of people would never even realize that you're using AI in certain ways, such as standardizing terminology or geography, and how important that is to feed into the rest of everything that you're doing. So this was really insightful podcast, and I'm sure that many, if not all of our listeners are on LinkedIn. So it's nice to kind of, you know, get a behind the scenes tour of what's going on. So thank you so much. And I want to wrap up this podcast by asking, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to organizations and beyond?
2: (laughs) I've been told I'm not necessarily a good oracle of the future. Neither do I want to be one. I'd like the future to surprise me to some extent. But in the far future, I would say that it's clear that the future of AI is in applications, especially how we leverage that tool, if you want, to make us all smarter and able, enable us to do more. And to do so, I think that it needs to be much more accessible to a set of individuals than just AI experts. That AI becomes more of a plug-and-play and kind of a click-click-click driven interface, if you want. And you can already see that, for example, cloud providers are providing big platforms. You have Azure ML on Azure, you have SageMaker on AWS, you have AutoML on GCP, and the whole idea is to lower the barrier of entry. And because it's application driven, then you have really cool things that pop up. There was this example about a cucumber sorting from a Japanese systems engineer that built it to help his parents sort through cucumbers on the cucumber farm. I would have never thought of that as an application of AI, but there it is. And it makes sense. It allows his parents to be more efficient in the way and not spending hours in sorting their cucumbers, which is a task that they need to do. Then I think the future also is we need to spend much more time still on the ethics of it all. I think we as a profession have started to pick it up, but we need to be much, much, much better. Three years ago, if you were talking about ethics or the ontology of ethics, people would have looked at you and said, what are you talking about? This is an AI conference. We're talking about methodology, technique, et cetera, et cetera. But if application is what is going to drive it, then we need to think about it much more carefully. If we're doing, again, we're doing much better than in the past, but we still have lots to do. It seems that you have a lot of AI principles that are put in place. I think they're roughly almost close to 90 now. But it has to come from down from being just principles to what people internalize as they're building things with it.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, we've definitely seen the conversation around ethics and responsible AI and transparency and these other issues all sort of come more to the fore, especially when we're seeing AI being used more in our daily lives for everything from facial recognition and predictive analytics to things like loan decision making and, you know, automated moderation, even people wonder like, okay, well, you know, we, in order to train these systems, in order to trust these systems, we need to have the sort of understanding and there needs to be more emphasis on sort of the social and ethical and responsible part. So you're definitely, yeah, yeah. definitely in the, the mainstream of, of all that. Yeah. So,
2: so mm-hmm. When I thought about ethics at the, uh, some years ago, when I, when I thought about that entire space, I also wanted to make sure that in the end, you always have someone who's coding it, who's developing it, who's creating that, that application. And I wanted to make sure that that individual who's doing this thing is ready for the consequences or the the unintended consequences of what he's he or she is doing. And the only way to do so is to actually really think about it. You're never necessarily going to get an explicit answer. This is right, this is wrong, or maybe, but you need to think about it. You need to ask yourself those questions. Because if you don't, and something bad happens about it, I'm not too sure how you're going to be able to deal with it. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. Well, I think that may, may be something we can uh, discuss further. We have, for those of you that are listening, we have our bonus episode, so you should definitely tune into that. So Igor, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. We've enjoyed having you as a guest, and we hope our listeners have found a lot of value in all the great stuff you've contributed today. You're more than welcome.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today, Igor. And as Ron mentioned, we will have a bonus episode, so make sure to go to aitoday.live to check that out. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter, and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group.